1: Hey, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. So before I bring our guest on today, I wanted to share with you the purpose of Labor Relations Radio. It is to talk about news and views in labor relations, whether you're on the employer side or the union side. Now, what I'm trying to do with Labor Relations Radio is bring on guests from a variety of perspectives. We've had a number of guests who are free market thinkers um, or involved in the free market from the employer side so to speak and what I'm trying to do is also bring on people from the other side because labor relations is basically employers and unions and employees are oftentimes caught in the middle so today's guest is somebody that I've admired for a very long time he is the consummate professional and a unbelievably good writer. His name is Stephen Greenhouse, and he was a reporter for the New York Times from 1983 to 2014. And 19 of those years, he covered labor relations or labor unions and the workplace. He's been honored with the Society of Professional Journalists Deadline Club Award, the New York Press Club Award, the Gerald Lieb Award for Distinguished Business and Financial Reporting, and the Hillman Prize for Book Journalism for his book, The Big Squeeze Tough Times for the American Worker. His latest book, which is 2019 beaten down, worked up the past, present and future of American labor is an unbelievably good read. And it brought me back years. Um, if you're a labor relations practitioner or a student of labor relations, I strongly recommend you read it, whether you're on the employer side or the union side, it gives you a sense of history that very few other books do. Um, he's got a number of big events that he, he cites in there and we talk a little bit about this, but I wanted to have him on because as I mentioned, I've respected him for a long time and he's from the other side of the table, so to speak, as you'll, you'll hear in a few moments. Um, in any case, here's Steven Greenhouse and our conversation earlier. You are listening to labor relations radio. So Stephen Greenhouse, thank you so much for coming on labor relations radio. Nice to be here. I I was mentioning a moment ago that I've been a huge fan of yours for years, um, more as a labor reporter, because I've followed you for a number of years in the articles you write. And I I wanted to mention, I think, um, so you're with the New York Times. You started labor reporting. Uh, You'd done that for 19 years, you'd said, on your your, uh, jacket on the the book, which I want to get to in a second. But um, you were doing labor reporting around... 89 ninety 91 maybe
0: no I was actually spending a lot of time in Eastern Europe covering the downfall
1: of communism oh interesting. In 89 ninety 91 yeah so so let me ask you um what made did you always want to be a reporter
0: yes I mean I was torn between whether I wanted to be a lawyer or a reporter and I actually ended up becoming both but I was always fascinated by newspapers and the power of the press, and I remember the first time I saw a gestette in a printing machine, I think I was in fifth grade, I was just fascinated by, you know, being able to disseminate what you had to say and just, you know, the power of the press. I was editor of my high school newspaper, I was editor of my college newspaper, and I love to write, and, and another thing I love about reporting is you get to explore what's happening, you get to ferret out the truth, you get to explain people to people what's happening in the world
1: so did uh, what gravitated you towards um labor and workplace issues
0: so uh i grew up in a family that was left of center my father grew up very very poor during the depression his father was in the garment industry here in new york his father lost his job for a while my father's parents had so little money didn't have enough food in the refrigerator that they put my father in in an uncle's house for a few months because the uncle who was an engineer had, had money to feed him. And so my father, you know, became very pro-labor during the Great Depression before he went to fight in World War II. And I guess in our household, you know, we were, you know, I went to civil rights marches as a kid growing up in New York, which was um Kind of unusual for a white kid in the suburbs, and my parents were pro labor, and you know I listened to Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger. So you know I was cognizant, you know, knew more about unions and labor than many many other people. Having said that, when we began at the New York Times, I began as a business reporter. I covered the steel industry, the chemicals industry, the lumber industry, and I became. Uh, Midwest economics correspondent, business correspondent for the New York Times, based in Chicago, covering um, Wall Street, Purina, covering 3M. You know, not covering labor, covering business. And I wrote a lot about what made businesses successful. And I must have done something right because then I was transferred to the New York Times Paris bureau for five years, and I was the European economics correspondent. And I spent a lot of you know covering the European Union and, and great companies like Mercedes-Benz and, and, and BMW and Volkswagen. And, and you know, I met Giovanni Agnelli, the head of Fiat. And you know, I wrote a lot about what made companies great and what made them succeed. Um, and uh, then I spent a lot of time when I was in Europe, in Moscow, in Warsaw, in, in uh, Prague, writing about the downfall of communism, Budapest, because that became a huge story in the 1980, 1989, 1990, 1991. And I saw the rot that a big government, big dishonest government can, can create. And then I went back to the United States. I became an economics correspondent in, in, the, in the New York Times Washington Bureau. I became a State Department correspondent. And I started to miss writing about human beings, State Department's old policy, 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 policy. So they asked me what beat I wanted and the labor beat was open and I, you know, I thought this could be a very good beat. You're writing about human beings. I care about human beings. I care about things like poverty and income inequality. So I applied for the labor beat and one of my best friends said, Stephen, you're crazy. You were in the Paris Bureau. That was such a sexy beat. Why would you want such a lousy beat like the labor beat? And I said, you know, I think it could be a great beat. You know, it was kind of not very prestigious back then at the times in like 1995. I said, you know, there are 130, 140 now, 155 million workers in America. And if I can't find a bunch of great stories about workers in America, whether you know housing conditions for farm workers or or how Walmart workers are doing, or how immigrant workers are doing, or how you know, you know, what unions are doing to lift workers or how corrupt some labor unions are. It's just a gazillion good labor and workplace stories. So I began the beat in late 1995 and I had it for 19 years and as I often said to people, if I'd done really lousy on the beat, they would have removed me within a year or two. If I'd done really right. great on the beat, they would have moved me to the to the to the White House to cover Donald Trump or something. And you know, but you know, like, clearly they're pretty happy with how
1: I was doing. Yeah, well, you've you've written some phenomenal articles over the years, and that's where I first started watching you really. Um so you've been gone from the from the times since 2014? Yes. And um so you've written a couple books, and one of them I, I mentioned to you, I'm not quite finished yet, but it's Beaten Down, Worked Up, the Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. And I I would say for anybody entering the field of labor relations. um, It is a fantastic book. I was was recalling some of the stories in here. You've got a a section on PATCO, the air traffic controller strike, and I did a paper on that in college with another union guy. My degree program was both labor and management because it was labor relations um adult i thought your college days predated patco but i guess you're younger than i think no i'm uh, yeah no i just look older i've been i've been uh written hard and put away wet as they say um so i i started in the union movement in about 1984 but um and then i went to school after i was in the union for eight years but the um yeah it was fascinating reading some of the names and then you've got uh some comments in the in the forward about uh dubofsky the uh, he's got a, a bunch of books or a couple of books out there that we had as textbooks in the, in the degree program. Um, so are you, st- I saw an article you published, uh, I think it's American prospect, was it last week or a couple of weeks? You're still writing. Yeah. Are you um, doing, are you doing it regularly or just here and so there when you see I, something? I, I've been doing a lot of writing
0: um, partly, you know, during the pandemic, you know, one of the reasons, you know, I, I took a buyout from the New York Times. They basically, you know, I was 63 years old. They're basically throwing two years of salary at you if you leave. So mm-hmm. I said, well, I want to do all this traveling and I have this book to write. So I took the buyout, left the Times, um, wrote this book, you know, went, went around the country for a year, you know, talking, you know, to, to universities and, and and labor groups and conferences then it was all ready to start traveling around the world finally 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 i've never been to South america or or north africa or china or japan and uh, then the pandemic came so what am i going to do during the pandemic you know i you know so I, I i and there was a lot to write about during the pandemic because a lot of companies did not do a great job in how they treated workers during the pandemic so I've been, I've been doing a lot of freelancing for the New York Times, the Washington Post, you know, the LA Times, the American Prospect, the Guardian. And then I got this nice little fellowship with the Century Foundation, which was founded by the Filene Brothers 100 years ago. Um, and I've been doing some writing now. Um, and there's a lot going. There's been a surprising amount of Going on with labor and workplace issues over the past year, the, the, the Kellogg strikes, the Nabisco strikes, the John Deere right. strikes, the Great Resignation, now these union new victories at Starbucks and REI and the New York Times and the um, Art Institute of Chicago and other places. So things are bubbling up and there's a lot to write about. And a lot of people ask me to write for them.
1: Yeah, there is a ton of stuff going on. It's fascinating. Um, and I, I joke around sometimes. I've been involved with labor relations since the Reagan era, then it was Bush, one, and then Clinton, then Bush too, and then, um, let's see, Obama, and then Trump, and now uh, the Biden years. So it's the pendulum has swung back and forth, at least in my career, for at least five times, if not more. <clears throat> um, so, and right now, it's it's one of the most fascinating times, I think, in the last close to four decades, I've been watching it and in it. Um, so before we go to the, what's going on now, um, can we talk about the book a little bit and sure, what? Sure. So I had a whole bunch of just topics. I didn't write down specific questions, but I thought it'd be um, fascinating to talk about uh, where where things have been, where they are currently at, and then kind of where they're going in the future. And um, one of the things, so you you wrote about Patco, and you touched on in the book. Um, and I, I know it's been like two or three years since you wrote it, so I don't want to pick out all the, the details that I was highlighting. Um, but you talked a little bit about PATCO, the events leading up to PACO, Um, You did a great, great job on that. The, um, the question I've got, and this is just more for exploratory purposes, the, one of the things that I think affected the union movement in large measure was in the 70s and 80s, and you talked about deregulation. Um, and here the New York traffic behind you. Um, but I don't know that, so this kind of brings us to today, but I wanna stay on the past for a minute. We deregulated, and when I say we, this was done in predominantly the Carter years, the airline and trucking industry, um, airline and railroad, then trucking, which was 1980s Motor Carrier Act, um, and then you had the uh, deregulation of the, I'm trying to think. Well, we got, I was part of the telecom industry. So that was 83 the break up the Ma Bell companies.
0: Airlines, yeah.
1: Yeah, airlines. Um, all that happened in like the late 70s, early 80s. And then you had also at the same time, and this kind of, if you were to track the decline of unions, at least in the private sector, you know, I think 1947 was our peak. They went down a little bit after World War II, went up in the 50s, and then been somewhat declining ever since. It was the advent of globalization, if you will. Although that's kind of an unfair statement because, like, we've always been a global economy, so to speak, just not as much as now. Um, And it was like this collision course that happened in the 70s, right? We had all this stuff going on, and... Factory workers were starting to lose their jobs. PATCO, I think, was a. A lot of people blame Reagan for PATCO, but that was. And you hit this very well. Is this, It was coming regardless of whether Reagan won the election or, or Carter did. Which I don't know that a lot of people on the right or the left understand. Reagan gets credit from the right for busting the air traffic controllers, when, I'm going back 30 years. So I may misquote this, but I think, um, Carter's was it was Carter's strike plan that Reagan used. Right, right. He just, I don't know that Carter intended to fire him.
0: So, I, so let me give a little background and then we'll get up to the Padco strike. So I started covering labor for the New York Times in 1995 and I covered it, you know, to 2013, 2014. And, and remember in the early 2000s, I saw this trend that jumped out at me. I always felt inadequate about being able to write about it, that Corporate profits kept reaching record levels. The stock market kept reaching record levels. Productivity per worker kept reaching record levels. But, you know, every year the BLS would, you know, issue reports saying basically real wages for typical workers hasn't increased. And, you, right. and we've all seen these charts saying for 20, 30, 40 years, real after-inflation wages for typical workers hasn't gone up well. Corporate profits have soared and productivity per worker has soared and the stock market has soared. And I said, there's something broken here. So, I wrote a book called The Big Squeeze Tough Times for the American Worker to try to show that there's some disconnect between corporate prosperity and how a lot of typical workers aren't doing well. Some workers are doing great, but a whole bunch weren't. So, I wrote that book. And then a few years later, my book editor asked me to write a history of the labor movement. And I said, you know, I'm not a professional historian. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist. I write the first rough draft of history and I try to get as much as I can write and I sometimes make mistakes and there are great labor historians like Mel Dubofsky whom you mentioned and, mm-hmm. and Nelson Lichtenstein and like why should I kind of reinvent the wheel and write uh, a new history of the labor movement but I said to my editor and this will tie, tie someone to the pad, because like one of the things you know, I, wrote, I wrote this book about this crazy disconnect where corporations and the rich are doing very, very well while typical workers in the United States are not. But I don't feel that I explained adequately why things have been so tough for workers in the United States. And part of that is that unions have declined. So I, so my editor and I kind of compromised. I'd write a book that was like one-third history, one-third an explanation of why unions grew, you know, one-third of what, how unions were built and how they Help create the middle class, and then one third about, you know, the decline of unions and and why did they decline, and that was, I had the chapter in Patco, and the last third is about, you know, how to try to rebuild worker power in the United States and overcome things like the wage stagnation and horrible income inequality we have. So, in the the middle of the book, I explain there are, like, several very powerful reasons why unions grew weaker in the United States. And as you say, unions were strongest in the late 1940s and the 1950s when basically one in three American workers was in a union. And, and in the 1980s, it was basically 22%, 23%, and one in five was in the union, and now just one in 10 is in a union. And, and so why did things start to decline? And, and I remember once writing it there, there was like a quadruple witching hour in, in 1980, 1981. And the 1970s were a very rough time for the American economy. Right. There, were, there were these horrible oil shocks in 1973 um, with the um, Arab oil embargo in 1979 when, when Iran we, – we had a big fight with Iran and Iran – and we stopped importing – anyway, there was huge inflation. And, and um, so in 1980, there was this horrible recession in the United States. And that was one of the, you know, shocks in the quadruple witching hours. Second, you know, there's this horrible, horrible um, recession as the Federal Reserve raised interest rates to 20 percent, which really slowed the economy. Second, right around that time, the United States really felt a huge inflow of imports of of things with real value added, you know, not little transistor radios that we were getting in the 1950s and 60s, but you know, cars and televisions and steel. And, and that was really, it was that's, yes, you were absolutely right when you said, you know, we've long been a globalized company, but it was really in the late 1970s and 1980s when we really felt the impact of globalization in high wage value-added industries. So that created, we saw a ton of factory shutdowns from the recession and increasingly from imports. Then, um, you know, unions were very strong. Progressive politics, liberal politics, were very strong in the 1950s and 60s. Dwight Eisenhower was a big supporter of unions, let's not forget. Mm -hmm. LBJ, JFK were big supporters of unions. Um, But, you know, Milton Friedman, the development of uh, libertarian economics, the University of Chicago School of Economics, you know, it was much more libertarian, much more free market, and unions were increasingly seen as a fly in the ointment to put it, you know, put it generously, or just a pain in the butt that got in the way of the free market, that got in the way of corporations, you know, doing their best to keep keep costs down and maximize profits. And then so, you know, Ronald Reagan was elected by people, many people who believed in, in what Milton Friedman was saying, who believed that unions had, had gone too powerful, who were against regulations. So, you know, and Reagan, you know, and as I write in my book, you know, I think the air traffic controller strike was, you know, very, very, very much at fault for provoking a strike. And, you know, they engaged in an illegal strike. They kind of dared... Reagan to right. strike back hard against him, and and he did what any tough president would do. I think a lot of presidents would have fired them, but might have taken them back six months, might have been more forgiving. But anyway, um, so that kind of the Paco strike and the breaking of the union, the firing of the eleven thousand four hundred air traffic controllers, kind of helped set a tone for labor relations in the United States, and and you know many, you know. Labor historians, labor relations experts say, you know, what Reagan did really emboldened companies in the United States at a time they faced this huge recession and more pressure from uh, from global competition. And, you know, some economists were saying also the rate of profit for American corporations starting to go down in the 1980s after being pretty high in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So all this helped make companies take a tougher attitude toward reducing costs Becoming more competitive, which meant, you know, trying to hold down labor costs, which also often meant fighting against unions. Fair. Fourth, then let me just say fourth thing. The fourth thing. So we, we talked about recession, increased global competition, this kind of rise of free market, Reagan anti-union, somewhat libertarian world vision. And fourth, you know, the nature of you know I don't want to sound highfalutin. You know, the nature of American capitalism was changing. In the 1950s and 60s, people would say we had managerial capitalism where the CEOs really ran the show and the, and the shareholders really didn't get on their backs. The CEOs really did what they wanted. And, you know, and I sometimes talk about, you know, this, you know, the, the child of the banker and the child of the steel worker fought in the same trench in France or Germany. And, and there was more kind of, you know, solidarity across classes or whatever you want to say. That's And... True. and, and you know, in the 1980s, um, you know, we moved. We really started to move from so-called managerial capitalism to like investor or financial capitalism, where there's the development of, of mutual funds and hedge funds, and and Wall Street became much more powerful in telling corporations how to do and, and and telling CEOs, you better maximize profits. You better come in and hit your profit target. And one way to do that, CEOs saw, was to cut labor costs. And one way to cut labor costs is to get tough on unions. So I think there are those four things that really showed that the 1980s were a time when unions really were on the skids, where union density, the, the percentage of workers in unions, really started to slide quite quickly.
1: Well, I, I, I think there was a setup to a lot of this. And it it's almost as though, like, the foundation or the... the um, the gas was being poured pre 1980, 81 timeframe. And yeah, there's a, I'm sitting here trying to see it from across my desk. There's, I've got a book on my desk, which is the, and the Wolf finally came, which is about the demise of the steel industry, which the steel industry really started to take a downturn after the great steel strike in 1959. Right. So that's when you started seeing all the steel imports. So that was building, 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 um, you know, as a kid, I remember seeing Dotson's coming over, you know, in the United States yeah. and, you know, which is now Nissan, obviously. And so that was building up. Um, so all this stuff kind of had been building and then collision right around 1980, 81, should say. So it was, uh, the package. And, and
0: let, let's not forget that. After World War II, we were king of the hill. The European economy, the Japanese economy were largely exactly. destroyed. So our potential industrial competitors were really flat on the, you know, flat down on the mat. And so that enabled American companies to be very fat and inefficient. And and unions became strong then and they demanded their share of profits and prosperity. And both management and unions kind of got very lazy and didn't keep their eye on the prize of being competitive enough. And then the German car, German, you know, Volkswagen came roaring in, and and Nissan and Honda came roaring in, and then all these, you know, American corporate executives saying, "Holy crap! You know, you know, we discovered this thing called serious competition. Now we got to yeah. do something." So, so yeah, we we agree on that, Peter. That you know, there's. I not, so
1: I, 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 I joke around sometimes when I I hear the phrase "unions built the middle class," and you know, the quick rebuttal to that is. Well, no, World War II built the middle class because we basically decimated the rest of the world and we had all the manufacturing might here in the United States.
0: But, 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 but uh, we did, but until, you know, the great, you know, UAW strikes in the late 1940s, American corporations were not sharing their wealth uh, sufficiently with Workers, workers were still, you know, they are still very much working class in the late 1940s and early 1950s. They were not middle class. It was really, and I, and I strongly believe this, and Dobbski points this that too. You know, these landmark contracts that the UAW and I steelworkers won, and they spread, reverberated throughout the economy. They got companies to be pay more, to provide better benefits, and that really created a sharing of the nation's wealth that enabled the creation of the middle class. And you compare that with now where the percentage of GDP that's going to workers is basic right now is like the lowest since World War II. And the percentage going of, you know, business profits as a share of GDP is at record levels. So it was really different in the 50s and 60s when corporations were sharing more of their profits and prosperity. And I don't think that corporations are doing that out of the goodness of their heart. I think they were doing it because someone was pressuring them. And that someone was unions.
1: So, so that touches on a whole bunch of different things. You got pattern bargaining, industry wide bargaining, um, which is the UAW. Um, And there's and then if again, I'm I'm not trying to be combative with this question, but if you get to the 1970s, it was that pattern, or as we're starting to see Volkswagen, Nissan, or Datsun, you know now Toyota's. That's also what led to, in many cases, the the demise of the UAW in terms of real membership as again, it's competition coming in. Right. Um, it's, it's almost as though they're almost too successful during a period of time. There's articles, whether it was the UAW's fault or management's fault fault for being too slow to react. All all of the uh, above, all of the above. Um, so the, the, um, I'm trying to think if I want to stay in the past with this conversation because it's. I, I think a lot of it leads to where we are today, and we're um, we're coming out of the the pandemic-induced recession, if you will, mini recessions is fairly short. There's a whole bunch of labor activism. I I did want to touch on um, the fight for 15 that you've got a, a chapter devoted to because it's. Um, it seems to have morphed a little bit into something different than I think the original intent. The original intent was to unionize the fast food industry, according to the blueprint back in 2009. But now we're, we're looking at a, um, you know, more of a national movement to raise the, the minimum wage to 15. And, but then at this point with wage inflation accelerating, and obviously the bigger inflation is, is over surpassing that, but, um, you know where that's headed the um so, so go ahead so
0: I, so I, I see the fight for 15 a little differently I think and I've interviewed you know the fight 15 was really underwritten by the giant service employees international union which is one of the most dynamic unions and largest unions in the country and they um, you know a lot of their members are low-wage workers you know janitors security guards, you know, nursing home aides, hospital aides who clean bedpans. These are not high-wage workers. And, you know, and I interviewed Mary Kay Henry, the president of the union at Great Lakes, and, you know, and there we were 19—2008, 2009. There was this big—no, uh, sorry, 2011, 2012, which is, you know, the—515 um, was not founded in 2009. It was founded a few years later, and—and—and— and, and, Um, You know, they were kind of sick and tired. Like, why is Obama, you know, in this big debate about how to hold down the deficit? And and the union is saying, you know, it'd be much more, much better if the nation were focusing on the problem of low wage work in America. So as I explained in the book, they came up with this idea to create this nationwide campaign to focus on, they were debating should be $12 an hour, $20 an hour, $14 an hour, $18 an hour. So they decided on $15 an hour would be their goal. And as you say, Peter, they also very much wanted to unionize, you know, gazillions of fast food workers. But their strategy was they would somehow pressure, pressure McDonald's so hard that McDonald's would cry uncle and say, okay, we're not going to fight against the unionization effort. We'll remain neutral. We won't fight against unionizing the way, say, Amazon, we're seeing Amazon and Starbucks fight it right now. And they were unable to get McDonald's to cry uncle and say, "Okay, we'll let you unionize without fighting you." But in the meantime, they did very, very much succeed in their goal of getting the whole issue of low wage work as a big part of the national agenda. And now we've gotten eleven states to approve, even even conservative Florida, where where voters voted, you know, two to one, you know, for a fifteen dollar minimum wage. So it's really kind of changed the national conversation about about low wages. And as you say, now that we've had 70% inflation over the past year, don't be surprised, Peter, if, you know, it's, you know, the fight for 15 suddenly becomes the struggle for 17 or who knows what it's going to be called. 18, they'll, figure right. out, they'll figure out some some good alliteration. I'll, I'll send you the trouble, uh, trouble trouble for 20 or something.
1: I'll send you the blueprint that was drafted in uh, December of 2009. They I, saw, a- I saw
0: that and I think it was just some independent thinking that you know, maybe some of the people who came up with the idea for the fight for 15, you know, two and three years later had read. But it was, you know, their thinking was like there's some overlap because
1: yeah you, know, you, you, you want exactly. you want
0: you know as they as they often say you want workers you know the big phrase hip phrase in labor now is workers in motion so like if you're going to achieve a lot of change to lift wages or to unionize you need a lot of workers in motion so both this 2009 blueprint and the and and the folks who were meeting in Brooklyn that really started the 515 it was like how do we mobilize lots of workers to achieve higher wages. And that's not, you know, that's a common vision that many, many, many people have.
1: Yeah. Well, it was, I mean, it was clear when it was written, it was um, on the assumption that EFCA would, would become law. And yeah, they talk about the-, the
0: EFCA is the Employee yeah. Free Choice Act, which was yes. a, 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 a bill pushed by the labor movement and also by the environment Administration that would have allowed unions to gain recognition, not through uh, not necessarily through an election where a majority of people would have to vote for union, but by card check, majority okay. sign up, where once right. a majority of workers sign cards saying they want a union, the employer would be required to uh, recognize them. And it yes. also had various other things,
1: but that yeah. was the key thing. Well, and the and the binding arbitration, which was second, and then monetary fines was the yeah. third component yeah. to it. Yeah. So um, let's, let's touch on that for a second. Um, binding arbitration, So that's currently in the draft of the PRO Act uh, that passed the House. Um, I look at this more from a um, jobs perspective. I think, and this is my opinion, I think if we ever move to a arbitration system where after 120 days a government panel dictates what a contract is going to be for an employer, you're not only... um, going to wind up harming the employees, obviously the employer, but you're going to drive a lot of jobs, whatever, whatever can be outsourced will be outsourced. Um, And on top of that, it takes workers rights away. So you
0: have a very dark view of the fairness of arbitrators.
1: Well, no, it's, it's, we, again, going back to your point, we live in a, you know, quote unquote, free market system. And where you have, the government coming in and telling an employer basically how to run their business. I don't think a lot of employers are going to put up with that. So if um, you have, if you have the option to outsource work to Bangladesh, Mexico, wherever, I think you'll see a lot of that, where that happens, where, where those types of jobs can move. And so, the, you know, again,
0: I, I frame things somewhat differently, Peter, you know, the United States has of all the 35-40 wealth, advanced wealthy nations in the world, you know, from New Zealand to Portugal to Norway to the United Kingdom to Germany, the United States is the most anti-union company and, and country, and companies are the most anti-union. And study after study shows that. Basically, of all the advanced industrial nations, the United States is number one and number two, and levels of income inequality and number one and number two, in the percentage of workers who are defined as low income, meaning below two thirds of median income. So we are the wealthiest nation in the world. We have untold riches, yet there's something broken that you know there are many, many, many millions of Americans who struggle day to day, even before the pandemic came. So, um, you know, people forget that corporations are this artificial creation of the law. That that you know, government came together once upon a time and allowed corporations all sorts of legal privileges. That you know, you can't hold individuals bankrupt. You know, you allow people to incorporate so they're not dra- so they and their families are not dragged into bankruptcy if the company goes bankrupt. So, like, corporations are a creation of government. They're, they don't government regulation, so I just think it's the height of hypocrisy when many corporations say, oh, regulation is terrible. They're created by regulation. You know, they, they, were, they were created to regulate bankruptcy to be fairer to the families of people who run businesses. So, you know, binding arbitration, I know a lot of arbitrators, they're not communists or crazy leftists. They want unions to succeed. They want businesses to succeed, and they're not going to rush. You know, they, you know, a lot of arbitrators like conservative people. They went to law school. They have business degrees. They're not trying to put businesses out of business.
1: Well, let me let me give you an example. Um, and this would this is kind of written into the text of the Pro Act. Um, you have if a company gets unionized. Explain what the Pro Act is. Sorry. Per, protecting the right to organize. I've. I've talked about it and blogged about it a lot, um, protecting the right to organize act, which is there's 27 different components to it, but I'm focusing right now just on the binding arbitration. So if you have a, for example, construction company, um, and you're in New York. So let me just say over in Jersey, there's a construction company with 20 employees gets unionized by say the IBW, and it goes to an arbitrator The way that the PRO Act has it spelled out is you have to look at the company's business. Uh, The company basically, I don't know if they're going to mandate this where the company has to open their books, but they also have to, whatever the contract is, is going to be like the industry around them. So in the trade unions, they have what are called area-wide agreements. So if you take a non-union business that has all of their customers that are predominantly non-union, because that's usually what happens with, with the non-union construction companies they have their own market and all of a sudden they have to flip into having to pay into the union's pension plan pay into the health and welfare plan pay the union scale that's in the area-wide agreement you're driving a lot of smaller companies like quite potentially out of business immediately and that and then on top of that the workers don't even have the right to vote on the contract if it's arbitrated they can either like it or leave like there's there's holes in this thing, and I'm I'm saying this from a right, right. more of a pro worker. Because sometimes that
0: sometimes the bunny arbitration will be hugely in the company's favor. Hopefully, sometimes but... <laughs> and like and that that's. I mean, there needs that, to be that, a balance. I that. mean, again, you know, just framing it differently, stepping back. Um, you know, again, corporations in the United States run more intense anti-union campaigns than corporations in any other industrialized country, and and we could talk about you know, the huge anti-union history in the United States where organizers of the IWW were literally lynched, literally lynched, Joe Hill, you know. Right. They're, you know, they're, they're, you know, and that did happen in Europe or, you know, or Japan. So um, so we have this anti-union history, and it isn't very, and as you see at Amazon, it's really, really hard to unionize big companies. And then once you win a unionization drive, uh, like, About half the time you don't even have a contract after a year of negotiations because basically companies are saying, screw you. You might have won the right to unionize. We might be required to recognize you as a union now that you've got a majority vote, but screw you. We're not gonna, we're gonna make believe we're negotiating with you, but we're really not going to. And 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 that really kind of um you know emasculates disembowels eviscerates is the word eviscerates the effect of federal labor law people in theory have a right to have a union but companies you really do everything like many companies do everything they can to prevent ever reaching a union contract to show workers screw you you think you're gonna have a union but you can't so that's why there's this provision for binding arbitration and and sometimes you know sometimes arbitrators render decisions that are very pro-corporate, sometimes very pro-labor, but don't think they'll always be pro-labor. And that's why many people recommend, you know, for, for the arbitrator to be able to pick, you know, from the, the last best offers of each side, which kind of forces each side to move to a much more reasonable middle that would satisfy both sides. And remember, you, you, you talked about this, this theoretical contractor in New Jersey, if that contractor is paying $4 less an hour and not providing pensions and not having, you know, nearly as good safety precautions as a unionized uh, contractor, you know what? The worker's going to say this, this sucks. And we want to unionize. And they're going to say, basically, you know, we think for you to continue in business, you should provide pay us as good as other contractors. And if not, you know, well, if you go out of business, fine, we'll go to work, you know, we'll go to work for a unionized contract. I mean, that's, that's, a rational—that's one way to approach things. So, like that, why, why should a company succeed just by prov- not providing pensions, by providing more safety and paying five dollars an hour, hour less, when other companies succeed doing all those things?
1: You know, so, why, I, why, why favor the folks who take the lower road? I think that um, that kind of opens up another avenue of this, and which is so to take that to its logical consequence, the non-union customers, so to speak, you have all of a sudden one of your vendors becomes unionized, but there's another company down the road. Then they go down to the their next customer. Uh, hold on for a sec, because I think this is one of the problems that has not been explored enough with, with unions um, and they being the victims in this case. I look at a lot of what's happening today as an issue of supply and demand. And where you have... Too many workers in the pool, you're going to drive down the costs of labor, right? Right. If and we started seeing this pre-pandemic, there was a tightening of the labor market. Wages were finally starting to rise, and then right now, I think it's just it's artificial. Um, I think we've got more people leaving the the workforce than are coming into it, and that's that's another problem I'd like to explore with you. And by the way. we do look at things at from different sides. That's why I wanted to have this conversation with you because I think it's beneficial. Um, so if, and I think part of, so from a consumerism standpoint, going back in history, when the UAW and the big three weren't keeping up with trends for the consumers, the consumers went somewhere else. If you have, um, if you have a Walmart on one, one corner and a Bergdorf, good men are I don't even remember the name of the store um, whatever across the street similar products they're gonna go for the cheaper vendor right um and that's so I I guess I don't have an answer for you know all of the societal ills that um are happening I think unions have suffered from it we've got you know if you look at the construction industry you've got you know more and more non-union construction workers going into the market, taking shares of the market, if you will. Uh, I think it's happening a little bit more in New York. It's definitely happening down in Philadelphia. And so that, you know, now the unions right now are all busy in at least in construction, because the economy's, you know, there's shortages on everything. But if, if you look at what's happened with unions, I think a large measure, um, has been, and I'm going to say we as the American workforce, um, we have seen so much either influx of, of people coming into the country, and this is not to be xenophobic. I'm just talking pure supply and demand. We've seen automation hit at the same time. Um, and it's, I guess the question is, do we need the government to prop up labor, which is kind of the direction we're heading? And then I go back to Samuel Gompers, who never wanted government involvement. Yeah. You know, says- Go ahead. So,
0: you told me you're, you know, more libertarian than I am. Yes, you are. But you know, and you know, I share, you know, some of the libertarian vision that I don't like. I don't like it when corporations are too big. I don't like it when government is too big. I don't like it when unions are too big. And and you know, now, you know, so you know, the rise of the union movement in early the twentieth century was when you know the age of the robber barons. The, the Gilded Age when corporations were super powerful and a lot of workers were really struggling and and, uh, and you know then so you know unions kind of saw themselves as a way to ensure a fair deal for workers and as corporations became more sophisticated in the 1930s, 40s and 50s and, and, and had more influence on government, you know people like John Kenneth Galbraith said the unions play an important role as a countervailing power to corporate power because corporations you know got very powerful in the 50s and 60s they're incredibly powerful now i would argue they have huge control over many branches of government and, and 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 so you know to my mind you know how do we how do we as a people as a country try to reign in this huge corporate power that has led to many gazillionaires and the worst income inequality in history and, and, you know, underfunded, you know, under, you know, not enough funding for roads and not enough funding for schools. And like, you know, unions, to my mind, are one tool to help assure a fair distribution of political and economic power to, you know, to kind of prevent the excessive power that corporations have. And, and you know, a lot of theoreticians talk about how unions help, you know, bring up, you know, help help assure democracy. Look what happened with Solidarność, Solidarność and, and Lech Wałęsa in Poland. You know, that the unions play a very important role in preserving democracy and ensuring a fair economy and helping lift wages. Um, and so you know so yes I can understand you know yes I agree with you Peter sometimes unions have been too powerful sometimes they have so much power the wages get uncompetitively high and it's very hard to get them down because remember unions are democratic institutions so if you were a UAW leader in the 1970s and you said you know our wages are too high it makes us hard to compete with Japan you know it's going to happen to you if you're a UAW leader you get booted out so there are there are problems. But I think unions overall are, you know, and and I've written a ton about union corruptions. I've been cursed out by union leaders for writing so much about union corruption. I understand that. But there's much less corruption than there used to be, despite the very unfortunate UAW corruption scandal last year. Uh, But unions, you know, play a positive role in bringing about a fairer economy. And again, the United States is in many ways... The least fair economy among all industrial nations. We are the only industrial nation that doesn't have a law guaranteeing all workers paid sick days. We're the only industrial nation that doesn't have a law guaranteeing all workers paid vacation. You know, in in the 27 nations of the European Union, every worker is guaranteed at least four weeks vacation in the United States workers aren't guaranteed zilch in terms of vacation. We're the only industrialized nation that doesn't guarantee parents pay parental leave. We're the only industrialized nation that doesn't guarantee universal health coverage. And that's because basically, you know, corporations don't want all that stuff. They, they, they give a lot of money to elect politicians to prevent all these things because as soon as someone puts forward a law, a bill saying we need paid sick days, the Chamber of Commerce, the National Federation of Independent Business say you know damn this is a this is a mandate we can't have a mandate that's going to put us out of business well every other industrialized nation in the world has these things but we don't and that shows there's something very broken in the United States that corporations have way 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 too much power the public overwhelmingly support like 80 85% support a higher minimum wage support a law for paid sick days support a law for paid parental but because corporations have so much power in distorting american democracy and impeding majority rule what do we do to fix that and unions are perhaps the best tool to
1: fix that see i so let me see if i can edify this i think um i think that begins the question of what is the proper role for government and this is where like i go back to Samuel Gompers, because I was a huge fan of his back when I was in the union movement, and since leaving, he did not advocate for a minimum wage through the government. He advocated for a minimum wage through the unions, right? And so, and he was very um, suspect of what what we now call socialism, or what he called socialism. But the is the proper role for unions to enact laws or should we have laws or should they be able to accomplish it through the bargaining table? Because his argument was, if we get government to do it, then we're basically showing our incompetence, right? And I I, I don't know if he used that exact word. So this brings us to today where if we, and I don't know if it's, you know, fight for 15 or advocating for, you know, universal basic income or things like that, is that the proper role for government? And what does that do to unions if they've essentially become, for lack of a better term, wards of the state?
0: So so I think you're asking the wrong question. Is that the right role for government? I think, you know, we are citizens of the United States. and And I, as a citizen, you know, think everyone should be treated fairly and with respect and dignity. And I think it's wrong when a worker doesn't get you know, five or 10 or 15, a mother who gives birth, a you know, worker gives birth, doesn't get five or 10 or 15 weeks off paid maternity leave. Mm-hmm. I think it's wrong when you know, five-year-old Johnny gets sick and has to stay home from school, and mom or dad can't take the day off from work uh, to take care of the kid. And I've written about workers who get fired because they took a day off from work to take care of Johnny, who was home from school sick. and so... Or I think it's wrong, and I've interviewed McDonald's workers who worked five years in a row without ever getting a week of paid vacation. There's something wrong there. And the question is, how do we create a fairer society that treats people the way, you know, with Judeo-Christian values, the way people should be treated? You treat others, do unto others as you want them to do to you. So there's something extremely broken in the American workplace. Because corporations have such huge power and unions are so weak. So I keep asking, so how do we create greater fairness for Americans? Paid parental leave, paid sick days, you know, a lower percentage of workers working in poverty. You know, so I assume you want that too. So how do we do that? You could do it through stronger unions. You could do it through government mandate. You know, I, I want it done. You know, I don't want to have a dictator saying do that. But like... When you see you know New York Times polls, vox polls, Gallup polls show eighty percent eighty five percent want a law for paid parental leave, but we're the only and we're one of like four or five nations in the whole world, the only industrialized nation and in like um, Papua New Guinea and Suriname you know you know, and us are like the only nations in the world that don't have guaranteed paid maternity leave like this is screwed up, and like how do we fix that and you know I'd love it if unions, you know, if unions had a fair shot at unionizing millions of workers. But look at what Amazon is doing. Amazon makes it incredibly hard to unionize it. Like, you know, it's been gazillions of dollars fighting against this unionization effort in Alabama, now in Staten Island. So it's like you have to, you know. You run a gauntlet to get a union. You got to like risk getting fired. You got to really face the heat. It's not, it's like going into battle and it's not easy. So, so the Five for 15 says we wanted to have a union to win $15 for workers, but uh, you know, it's too hard to unionize McDonald's because they're going to run as, as tough a campaign as Amazon is. So, let's get legislatures to enact $15 because. We as a union, you know, yes, we want to unionize members, but we want to raise living standards for typical Americans, for low-age Americans. And and the people that I say, you will say, to the extent we could raise the floor for all workers, that will make it better for our members who are nursing home aides or, or bedpan emptiers or janitors.
1: So, you know... So let me ask you, um, should employers, I don't care if it's ABC Company or Amazon, should employers have the right to speak to their employees about unionization?
0: Yes, comma, but. Um, I you know I'm a lawyer. I understand the First Amendment. I understand that, uh, you know, especially the Supreme Court is going to rule. Of course, you know, you can't prevent uh Employers from you know giving anti-union talks to their members, and I can imagine some people say, "But it's wrong; it violates the First Amendment rights of employees to require them to sit in." You know, if you, the government, allow corporations to require people to sit in on these anti-union messages, like that's that's kind of violating people's right on what they want to hear or not hear. Um, and I realize one thing. You know, one could ask whether there's government action or not there, but I think the real problem, and, and and I've I've said this many times, I've written this many times, so many Americans don't begin to understand how uh, out of kilter, how tilted the playing field is against unions when there are unionization drives, when especially when there's a, a, a very anti-union company like Amazon or Walmart, because the company has the right under American law to propagandize, to put up anti-union posters, to send anti-union messages, to do what Amazon did, put up anti-union posters in toilet stalls, to require workers to attend anti-union meetings. And at the same time, under the decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court, corporations have the right to totally bar, prohibit union organizers from setting foot on company property. So there's there doesn't begin to be equal access to information. So I so while I, I do believe, I agree with you that corporations have the right to give their anti-union spiels, but I think the government should somehow require uh that unions be given equal time. And and the Supreme Court has repeatedly ruled that out, saying you can't require governments to let union organizers on their property because that violates violates their sacrosanct property rights. Well, I care about you know the you know the you know the welfare of of workers across the United States. I see this horrible income inequality. I see these record profits and record record uh, Wall Street earnings. You know, for decades when workers have really struggled and unions have had a very hard time because of this uh, very uh, in, you know this playing field that's really tilted very much against unions. So, uh,
1: being that I'm I'm in the middle of this to some degree. I don't know that a lot of people understand, um, and I, and I can't speak for other people in the industry, but what actually happens during a union organizing campaign? Um, you know, most of the time when I'm teaching classes, the very first handout I give to employees is the national labor relations act guidebook from the national labor relations board. So here's the law, whether you support a union or don't just know the process, right? Um, part of the problem, and I've said this for years, like if you want to put, um, if you want to put quote unquote union busters out of business, ensure that labor organizers are telling the truth. Because what typically happens during the card signing process is, and I've seen this for 20 some odd years, is workers are told one thing about a union authorization card without necessarily understanding the ramifications behind it. And that, um, I mean, I I can tell you that I've seen workers themselves told that if you sign an authorization card, you're going to be getting help with immigration. Um, one group was recently told that, you know, it's to help so-and-so with rent. You know, so there's no, and, and the court cases go back to the 1950s on, you know, basically union organizers are allowed to make workers' promises because a reasonable employee should know they can't guarantee them without getting, getting it through bargaining. So... You know, and it's fascinating because, again, I've been around a long time. Um, I've, having been on both sides of the table, there's an equal amount of paranoia, which, um, you know, unions are paranoid from corporations and corporations are paranoid about unions. And this is kind of why I wanted to have this, start these dialogues. Um, And it's, you know, it's like, if you could just sit down and have an open conversation about it, it's, you kind of get to a better resolution. So. I, you know, I certainly
0: don't like when either side lies to try to sway people, and um, I would hope union organizers wouldn't say, "Well, if you sign a union card, we'll help you with immigration." I'd hope they say, "If you sign a union card, then we'll vote, in, and we vote in a union. The union will do some things to help immigrant workers, you know, get citizenship or protect them against deportation." But if they just say, you sign this carburetor or help you on, you know, and, and corporate officials, you know, lie a lot too. They say, you know, if you sign, if you vote for a union, this place might close or we might. That would lower, be illegal. We might, that we, would might be reduce, a threat. we might reduce your benefits. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, so factually an, an, an employer can say you can get more out of negotiations. It could stay the same or you could get less. So that's a factual statement. You know, it's, you cannot threaten employees. Um, I mean, you know, we've had this debate, and not you and I, but
0: you know, I've, I've had this debate on Twitter with some, you know, anti-union consultants. You know, is it a coercive statement to say it was an improper threat if you say, if Amazon, as an Amazon consultant said in Staten Island, if you vote in for a union, you might end up making the minimum wage. Yeah, that that sounds some. That sounds fairly coercive to me. It, it, it's not saying you can end up with the minimum wage, but like, it's like.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's can like, it's, like it's, it's
0: a real threat. It's like we're going to we're going to hammer you if you vote for a union. So you know, we can debate that. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, it's can versus will. Yeah. I mean, logis- uh legally, yes, you could wind up that way. But, yeah. you know, but kind of, a,
0: kind of a can means that, you know, we will push for it once we begin negotiations.
1: Well, it's like, but, you know, and, if, and
0: then it's like implicit punishment. Yeah.
1: If if you go into a union, there is a possibility you could go out on strike. You know, Absolutely. That's a factual statement. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, so I think part of the problem, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to go down that road. I think part of it is that you don't have the organizers are typically not at the bargaining table. So you, and, and this is a trend I've seen over the last 15 or 20 years, um, where there's been more kids hired out of college, poli sci degrees or whatever to go work a campaign without really knowing, you know, the ins and outs of labor relations, um, and that's a totally different topic, but I did want to ask you. Um, you didn't. You didn't comment too much in your book. In fact, I don't know that I looked for it. But um, anything about the Change to Win coalition?
0: I, you know, so I write about you know the Service Employees Union a whole lot. They were. Mm-hmm. Part, I don't write much about the Change to Win coalition. Uh, you know, qua. You know, as as the you know I write about you know Unite you know, here was in that for a while, and and, and the, the Teamsters were in it for a while, and but it, it did, you know, after these various unions quit the SEIU, the United Farm Workers, uh, United here, right, mm-hmm. um, um, the Teamsters quit the AFL-CIO. they formed a rival labor federation that really didn't amount to much. I mean, it tried, but it kind of, after a few years, it's really fumbled, and the SEIU has really you know been the it was the power behind the uh secession from the foco it's like of the unions that left it's been the, by far the most active in organizing although unite here the hotel workers union has gone back into the foco and it, it's done a terrific job unionizing it's done a terrific job in politics in arizona and nevada um
1: i think you'll and, see you'll see teamsters go back in uh probably soon
0: maybe that that's that's what some people say. Maybe, maybe we will, we will see. We will see. And there isn't, you know, there isn't the hatred there was between Richard Trumka and and Mr. Hoffa that they're right.
1: Um, so, and the reason I bring that up, because um, in 2005, when that happened, I, again, more as an observer, but also involved uh, from the other side, I had this, um, they talked about it. And unfortunately, it never happened. The big debate that split up the, the change to win unions from the AFL-CIO was the amount of money allocated towards organizing versus um, politics. And they wanted to go out there and do mass organizing, et cetera. But there's a, one of their first press conferences, which is I think where unions really need to go is the teamsters were going to be the, the training ground for truck drivers and uh, unite here for hospitality workers and it's getting back to what unions used to be which was essentially go back to the old AFL they were the the providers of labor skilled um, and they were you know apprentices to journeymen etc and i and where i'm struggling these days um, and i still don't see it other than being good lobbyists um, i don't see a role for unions in today's world, unless they get back to basics. And that was my whole premise 25 years ago when I wrote my graduating paper. They got to get back to basics. And that is, if you're going, you know, this, just being lobbyists, okay, fine, you're going to get some laws passed and all that stuff, but that negates your role as a union, you know, other than, and that's where I think it's heading, by the way.
0: So, you know, certainly among the longshoremen, you know, they really are the labor provider. They provide the skilled labor to unload these humongous containers on these humongous ships. But and, and construction, the construction unions. But for other unions, it's I mean, it cost a lot of money to run a hiring hall and to know. You know, you know. I think a lot of unions have shrunk so much, Peter, that you know they kind of prefer to let the free market or let corporations handle the hiring and. Yeah I mean it would be you know I mean you raised an interesting notion would it be worth the Teamsters' while to train all these truck drivers and provide drivers to these different companies and even if the Teamsters did to these non-union companies you know will those workers be unionized it's all maybe that will work maybe not and going back to the point you made about Gompers so Gompers you know was the first uh, president of the American Federation of Labor in the 1880s And he was really there kind of at the conception of the labor movement when they were trying to unionize a lot of workers. And he was scared that if we have a minimum wage, if we, if workers get workers' compensation, you know, protection against being injured on the job through the government and not through their union, they're going to feel less of an impetus to join the union. So, Mm -hmm. so Gompers saw unions as like the savior on all these areas, like the union will provide it, not the government. So here we are 130, 40 years later, and just 6% of workers in the private sector are in unions. And I think a lot, of, you know, a lot of smart union leaders say, we'd love it if we could represent 40 or 50% of the workers in the private sector, or 80, 90% is the case in many Scandinavian countries, but that ain't going to happen. And I believe the main reason it's not going to happen is that there's so much corporate resistance to... Unionization—that it just makes it very, very hard to unionize—and it like helps prevent the big wave of unionization to get to maybe 10 percent. That might soon become 15 or 20. Anyway, so that's why a lot of union leaders say, "Look, if we're going to get a $15 wage, if we're going to, you know, win paid sick days for workers, uh, yes, we want to do it through unions, but it's so hard to unionize. Only one in 16 private sector workers are on unions. Let's try to do it through government." And 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 corporations say. You know, the crazy thing is like it it really pissed me off. You know, so Donald Trump and Republicans pushed through this humongous tax cut for American corporations. And they didn't ask corporations to give one thing back in return. You know, I wish they said, okay, we're gonna give you this, you know, one and a half trillion, two trillion dollar tax cut, but in exchange, we want you to agree to paid paid parental leave and paid sick days, which would have cost not much at all as a percentage of the trillion. But like you know, it's fine. Corporations say it's fine. Give us the $2 trillion, $1.5 trillion in tax cuts. But God forbid you say we should provide pay parental leave. That's a horrible employer mandate that's going to cause, force us to shut down. It's like the, the discussion is so warped in favor of corporations. They, and corporations have so much power. I, that's why I think, and, and I agree, you know, there are a lot of problems with unions they know, often don't have. Visionary enough leadership, you know. Uh, there was a huge corruption problem. That's much less now, but but you know they are one of the most effective institutions in society in trying to help create a fairer economy. Because corporations are not trying to create a fair economy. They're trying to create more wealth for for shareholders. And yes, increased productivity. Uh, you know, helps create a wealthier society, you know, when they could produce products more cheaply, then people can afford them more. But still, there's this huge income inequality and huge imbalances in the U.S., far more than than in many other industrial nations.
1: Well, yeah, so that um, everybody's using Amazon because they're in the, the headlines these days. I don't know. I mean, if you if you look at the Amazon model, which is like, yeah, you know, are they number one or number two largest employer in the United States?
0: The num- uh, num- second largest private sector employer.
1: Yeah, uh, they. Um, uh, you know, I don't think Bezos is now. He's no longer chairman, but I don't think his long term strategy was to have employees. Period. Like they're they're moving towards automation as much as possible, and I think part. And so let me come back to this for a second because we're talking about um, unions and and like the Teamsters and such. So the Teamsters have this national strategy to unionize uh, Amazon. And I think one of the problems that the Teamsters has had, because they they talked about it, one of the agenda items at their last convention, is Amazon did something smart, which was actually raise the wages above the Teamster contract with UPS for the, um, for the logistics side, for the warehouse workers. And so... That's a hard argument for a union organizer. Who's I'm here from the Teamsters, and you know our UPS guys are making 14 as a start rate. And there's Amazon. You know I want to unionize you, but you're already making more than our guys. We're already paying union dues. That's that's a difficult thing for any union organizer, right? Now part of I I I I, I plead
0: ignorance. I don't know what the bottom rate is for the UPS part-time warehouse worker, logistics worker. If it's 14. uh then it's lower than amazon and that's a problem for the teamsters and teamsters need to fix that
1: yeah that was that was one of the issues in the uh contract being turned down a couple years ago yeah yeah. and which led sean o'brien to to uh become president right
0: i mean amazon i mean i think they want to have much more automation you're right but they also you know I, i think they're it has these kind of two insidious policies that make it extremely hard to unionize one, they really don't want workers staying, you know, for very long because they don't want them to invest in their jobs. They want to kind of like chew up people and have them leave because, you know, if you really, you know, dedicate your job and plan to stay for years, you have more incentive to keep a union, to, to push for a union. So the average, you know, Amazon, which, you know, which Bezos says we want uh, Amazon to be, and I quote, Earth's best employer an earth's safest employer, the average tenure of an Amazon warehouse worker is a measly eight months, which is less than one sixth the average of all American workers. So like, you know, it's not a pleasant job and it's true still. So I think that makes it, you know, I think that means it's hard to educate people, whether they want a union, because they're, you know, by the time you're able to reach the 5,000 people in the warehouse, you know, Half of them have already left. And second, Amazon workers work so insanely hard and are like so isolated from each other, it's hard for them to even talk to each other about a union. So, like, it makes it very, very, very hard to unionize. So, it's I, you know, I would
1: say that with any logistics company, if you've ever maybe, walked, maybe, yeah, maybe, uh, it's yeah. Team I, with UPS, yeah. you know, it's the old job. Yeah, but right? I, I often wonder, Peter, it seems
0: to me that there's so much emphasis on, uh, throughput and so much on speed in Amazon. I think it's more than other companies. I could be wrong. And, you know, the higher the speed, the higher the stress levels It, the harder it is to like take 20 seconds to talk to someone else, but I, I could be wrong.
1: Yeah. It's that's, that's the industry. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and frankly, it's cause I was marveling at this back probably about 10 years ago. The, you know, they're doing the old, um, and this isn't just Amazon, it's the industry they're doing the old, you know, time watch, uh, the stopwatches, you know, how many seconds does it take for yeah. you to get on the lift, take off and all that stuff. That's not just Amazon. That's like the entire right. industry. I started querying about it because I was like, where the hell did this system come from? Taylorism. It's... Yes, exactly. But yeah. who, who beget it in the, uh, logistics industry was UPS. They time everything. Right. Wow. Wow. And it's like, I don't know. Um, so, I, I, have a four, I have a four o'clock interview, so I have minutes. Yeah, that's, that's what I was wondering. That's, yeah. I was going to ask you how much more time do you have? So, um, okay, real quickly, Starbucks. Yeah. And this kind of goes back to the fight for 15. Fight for 15 model was to unionize a whole, you know, chain, right? And now it seems like they're going to the single individual bargaining units, contrary to what they were arguing with McDonald's, which means that they're going to have individual bargaining units to bargain contracts unless they can somehow, you know, they're going to have at this point, what, 90 or 115 different contracts?
0: Yeah. So uh, okay. so, 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 the fight for 15, is, as we were discussing, Peter, you know, it, so it had two goals, $15, $15 wage and unionize. And I want to unionize not by doing, you know, one McDonald's here and one McDonald's there. I wanted to like pressure McDonald's to say, we will not fight a union. and And you could then, you know, unionize a thousand places at once. Um, Starbucks, it has been one place at a time. And and I think there's – and the union that's seeking to unionize Starbucks is called Workers United, which is a subsidiary of the Service Employees right. Union. Right. And I think one reason they've begun a real unionization drive at Starbucks rather than than McDonald's is Starbucks has, what, 9,000 corporate-operated and owned restaurants. So, like, if you unionize 10 or 20 or 30, 40 – maybe because they're all have the same owner you can get basically a uni- uniform contract with maybe differentials in in wages of, of, you know whether it's more expensive in san francisco or phoenix or or you know durham north carolina right. but but whereas mcdonald's is much more franchised, so like this, you know, this franchise owner might have six stores, this one might have eight stores. So you might have to do a contract with this one for six and a contract with this one for eight. So, and I think the theory of the case is kind of different in Starbucks. I think they felt it's a more quote unquote progressive company with a more progressive clientele. And you could, you know, and, and, and it's, and it's workforce, you know, kind of more iconoclastic, more educated. You know, they, you know, they wear blue hair or purple hair or earrings.
1: Tattoos and piercings. Tattoos. Right.
0: And, like, you know, they're more, you know, up against the wall. Blah, and, like, they're just kind of more willing to, like, unionize, I think. And and I think the theory of the case was, like, if we could, you know, burst through the dam at two or three or five Starbucks wherever and in Buffalo, which is, you know, an old pro-union industrial city, uh, then that will open the floodgates, so to speak, and then we've seen that. And you know, I think some people are debating should the SRU and other unions try to do that at McDonald's. If you went at three McDonald's, wherever, then will a lot of McDonald's workers in Boston or New York or Buffalo or San Francisco or Chicago or Los Angeles or Atlanta, you know, in 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 you know, very blue cities, maybe there'd be a wave of unionization at McDonald's. But as you say, Peter, you know, if if you know you unionize. 150 mcdonald's and they're owned by 35 different franchise owners do you have to negotiate 35 different contracts and that costs a lot of bucks for lawyers right. and i and I think a starbucks i would imagine they're going to try to get a uniform contract with you know wage differentials to, depending on the cost of living
1: what i've been fascinated about with the starbucks campaign um and i it, i've been trying to figure out what it is that the company's done to get the workers to want a union. It wasn't until yesterday when they did their big tweet storm that I finally got some specifics, but I have seen a number of articles where, you know, Hey, we're happy. They're sending these letters to Kevin Johnson, the CEO. You know, we don't have any issue with any specific policies and we just want to voice or seat at the table. And that, I was like, okay, so you want to pay union dues just to have a union? Like there may be a better I, again, I read
0: I read that tweet storm differently. A lot of workers said our scheduling is way too herky jerky,
1: and it makes our lives miserable. No, our that boss- was yeah, that was yesterday that I finally got yeah. some specifics. Okay,
0: fine, right, right, yeah. right again.
1: So, yeah. but, again, but don't forget,
0: a lot of these people have gone through the pandemic, right? And a lot of you know, there's been a lot of scheduling stress. You know, they've been understaffing, which means the people who can still work get jerked around. And I feel some sympathy for management on that. It's like if you're short staffed, it's like and you want to do a good job treating your workers, it's still hard because like, oh, this person's sick. We need her coming on Sunday. Tough luck. That, that's, a, that's a hard issue. And and that's a reason workers want a union to help assure, in theory, they have a voice to create fairer scheduling. And then, yeah, the whole issue of is there enough code? Did Starbucks do enough did, did all these companies do enough to protect against COVID?
1: I'm watching the clock here, but I, that, again, that leads to another discussion about, so we've got New York City, for example, they're passing a scheduling law, right? That's the role of the state taking that role. In New York City, they're, they're doing a just cause law. Like, so I'm, I'm an ex-union rep, and I'm sitting here right. saying, okay, if they're doing all this stuff, what what job is does a union have anymore? Like, if the state is doing that.
0: Uh one role the union has is to help push to assure enactment of laws like that.
1: Then they're lobbyists.
0: Yeah, then they're lobbyists. They, I mean, but they, That's... A lot, they, they try to win that. You try to win that at a company, and the company will say, well, if we agree to fair scheduling, that puts us at a competitive disadvantage vis-a-vis other companies. So right. like if you can get it universal, there used to be pattern bargaining. So like if GM agreed to get get agreed to something that was expensive, well Ford and Chrysler would agree to it. So it, it you know if they agreed to something with the union, it didn't put them at a competitive disadvantage until Honda and Volkswagen came along. Right. And and now you know company might say, yeah, we'd be happy to give you paid parental leave. We'd be happy to give you fair scheduling at McDonald's, but that might raise our labor costs compared with Burger King or Taco Bell. So like if you can get a law that requires everyone to do it that doesn't put anyone at a competitive disadvantage. So see, I think think that's,
1: that's a danger for unions as a, as a model for their business. And that's, that's what I've been following. Like I, you know, they're doing the just cause law and I've, I've said for years, I teach just cause, you know, for management, you've got to jump off. I know. Um,
0: But But unions will say, okay, if we have a fair scheduling law, then we don't have to bargain about that. We'll bargain over a better health plan or a better vacation plan. You know, there are a lot of things to bargain over.
1: But once we go to universal health care, then we don't right, need to worry right. about that. Yeah. It's you're, you're. And it's working.
0: universal health coverage in European unions are much stronger in Europe. So,
1: yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. Okay. So I know you have to run. Um, I love talking to you. I have admired you for many, many years. I enjoy having these conversations with folks. You know, just kind of half debating stuff. So. Right. Right. Anyway.
0: But, you know, again, you know, it's been good talking with you. It's just like, you know, if you're a libertarian and you also care about having a fair economy where everyone's treated decently, how do you get there without unions or without government? I mean, because corporations aren't going to do it. So you have to think through what do we do to create, you know, a fairer society where we do unto others as we would want done to us. Like I want, you know, paid parental leave for me. Well, you know,
1: why not? Uh, and, and I think this is this is where the debate comes in. What is the proper role of government? Yeah, yeah. And you know, if you're gonna have a strong independent union movement, does it help them or hurt them to argue for more laws that essentially and this is the thing that Gomper's forecasted yeah. if you put the government involved in labor relations, that pendulum's gonna swing. And it has. You know, nineteen thirty five Wagner Act, nineteen forty seven it right, swung right, the other yeah. way. So yeah. Anyway, Stephen Greenhouse, thank you so much. I know you've got a call in five minutes, but thank you for okay. coming on Labor good Relations to talk. Radio. It's very good to talk. Okay. Hopefully we'll do it again. Okay. Bye bye. Bye-bye. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, so that was Stephen Greenhouse, former reporter of the New York Times and author of the book, Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. And as I mentioned before, if you're a student of labor history or somebody who wants to get into the field of labor relations or who's someone who's already in the field of labor relations, I strongly suggest you purchase it. And I'm going to leave you a link. Take a look at it. You'll enjoy it. Um, there's a lot of information, historical and current day in any case, as you can tell, we don't see eye to eye on a number of issues, but I thought the conversation was good, and I'm hoping that he'll come back on to Labor Relations Radio at some point in the future. And that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List, and if you want to reach out, you can leave a comment on the comments section under the audio portion of this episode. Uh, give us a call at 1-888-668-6466, or reach out on Twitter, at WorkplaceReport. That's at WorkplaceRPT. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio.